So we've been practicing here together now for just a little over, we've been here and practicing for a little over a day. How is that for you? I've spoken with some of you, others not. I have some idea and I've spoken with many who've been engaging in this way over years and of course myself have spent plenty of time doing just what you've been doing here today. And it's kind of a funny old process, isn't it? There's a way in which (coughs) we bring ourselves to retreat with perhaps some idea or sense of what it is we're coming to and yet in another way we can never really quite know. And sometimes, despite the fact that we have chosen to come, we realize that not necessarily all of us is sort of wholeheartedly there in that intention. It's kind of curious in a way. And it, uh, when I think about this, sometimes I remember a, a particular cartoon. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Calvin and Hobbes. Um, if you like cartoons, I, I personally regard it as one of the, uh, the both funniest and wisest cartoon series that's ever been generated. And... Uh, it involves, for those who don't know, a six-year-old boy, Calvin, and his stuffed toy, Hobbes, who is a tiger, who is alive in his mind and in a good amount of the uh, the cartoons. Uh, t- Hobbes is quite a, a wise character. But anyway, in this event, and it, I'll say, perhaps it'll be obvious, but what, why this relates to what we're doing here. In this particular cartoon, Calvin and his friend, Hobbes, the tiger, are sitting watching television. And their eyes are glued to the screen. And the voice comes from outside of the the room, it seems. Obviously his mother saying, Calvin, you've watched enough television, go outside and play. Nothing happens. The next scene, he's still, next cartoon, he's still sitting there watching television. Hobbes is also watching. They're pretty keen on whatever's going on. It's sort of sign of explosions and sort of various things on the television. You don't quite know, but you can tell it's exciting. And again, the voice coming in, Calvin, I said, go outside and play. Still no response. And then the the fourth scene is Calvin and Hobbes being thrown through the door into the garden. You can see them tumbling through the sky or through the air. And Calvin's response and retort as this happens to him is, it's too real. And I, I find it, apart from being really quite humorous, also quite poignant in that sense of how we kind of choose to live in the essentially television world rather than face the reality of our lives and of what life is. That there can be a way that sometimes what we're asked to do on a meditation retreat feels like, well, it sounds like a good idea. Yeah, I can tell it's not necessarily the most satisfying thing to be just basically living in the fantasies and the stories and the you know, the reruns, basically. You know you know how much television is reruns? Well, when we start to get to know what's going on in our mind, we see the same thing, don't we? There's not a lot of original programming going on, unfortunately. And we, even in the course of one day, if this is the, only the first day you ever spend in this situation, you'll have seen that we don't even have enough stuff to keep going for a day without repeating a whole lot of it. Yeah? 
It's a pretty limited playlist that's available. And sometimes something new turns up and it's either interesting or maybe not. But that, that sense of how somehow, you know, television is so effective and the whole sort of entertainment media is so effective because it mimics, it reproduces our inner experience of somehow this way in which we would like to be drawn into and lost in a world that somehow seems safer or more attractive or more entertaining than the actuality. And here we're really, you know, the invitation and the suggestion that's coming in again and again, and perhaps it's Kirsten and myself saying, you know, go out into the garden, you've been watching television long enough. Or maybe it's yourself, in your own mind there's the sense of, yeah, actually, you know, I'm kind of, I've had it with this program, I've seen it, I actually know what happens, you know? We know what happens, are we still watching it? We don't need to. And so that invitation to go out into the garden, to see what might be found in the realness of life and the actuality of it. Though at some level there's a sense of, I don't know if I want it to be that real. We can actually be a little ambivalent about it. And that's understandable. Because our experience of life can be challenging, can be difficult. I mean, what do we notice when we're sitting here on retreat? You know, of course when we read the brochures about meditation and development of calm and peacefulness and wisdom and compassion and the... You know, we, we have all sorts of images and ideas of what meditation will bring. And, you know, meditation these days, you know, blissful people who are really happy with their mortgage. We see them meditating on Lloyd's Bank advertisements or, you know, going on tropical cruises and image of the Buddha sort of find deep peace and serenity while sort of drinking coconut and papaya juice on a sun-drenched beach. Yeah, that sounds pretty good. We kind of like a little bit of that on our weekend at Guy House, I imagine. It all sounds pretty good. Now, what do we actually notice? There might be some of that. We can be touched by delight, by the sweetness and beauty of the life around us and within us at times. Yeah, it's that way. And at other times we notice that our mind is really busy and reactive or sometimes kind of drowsy and heavy. And we often wish that it wouldn't be so busy. It would slow down and give us a break. Or it wouldn't be always having something to say about everything that's going on. Or it would at least, now that it's finally stopped being so busy, stay awake because actually I'm supposed to be awake and you know, a number of people in the groups today just talking about how hard it is sometimes to stay awake. You know, as I reflected in one of the conversations, if we were to explain to our friends what we're doing here, you know, we'd say, wow, it was really, I was exhausted, you know, I went through that whole, oh, it was hard, I could barely stay awake. And said, so what were you doing? Oh, we sat on a cushion or in a chair for about you know, 30, 40 minutes, didn't do anything. And we got up and ambled slowly back and forth on the lawn. And we came back and sat down again. I couldn't stay awake. And they'd look at us and think, you know, I don't believe you. That sounds like totally relaxing and yet it feels at times tiring. And some of that is because we're resisting just being here in our life. We're not used to it. We're not sure if we trust it. And we're strongly conditioned and habituated to keep escaping from it. But here, the ways we can escape are somewhat reduced. They're not taken away because as long as we have a mind, it will look for escape routes. But here, it's much harder to do it without noticing that we're doing it. And that's important. So we begin to see what goes on. That busyness and that 
sleepiness are kind of related to each other. We're tired because of how busy we are. Often in that process of trying to escape from where we are. And our encouragement, invitation is, well, well, let's just see what happens if we stop doing that. Or at least if we stop giving in to the urge to do that. Sometimes it will happen. We stop, um, or we no longer abandon, no longer abandon ourselves in that. But actually support ourselves, back ourselves, we could say, in this endeavour to be more conscious, to be more awake. What we also notice here is our heart. Although we're talking about paying attention to the body and to the breath, we start to notice our mind more clearly. We see it. This practice is like a mirror for us to see that. We start to notice our heart. We start to feel. Maybe sometimes we feel really tender or raw or or painful emotions, feelings might touch us. Or we might be actually feeling really delightful, uplifted, excited, exuberant feelings. Or we might actually not be feeling very much at all and we start to notice that we're not feeling very much at all. Not feeling very much is okay, but often we can feel the absence of feeling and it's actually kind of concerning. Like we're not really fully in touch with the life of our hearts. And yet that heart life means so much to us. So much of the depth of what we seek and what we love and what we're touched by is in the life of the heart, it seems. And this tender organ or aspect of our experience, obviously not talking about the physical organ, but this aspect of our experience of feeling, then we start to sense it and you know, for some it'll be more one, for some it'll be more another aspect that starts to stand out or show up. We also notice our body. Of course, we're being encouraged, invited, and you know, regularly come back to feel your body, notice your breath, sense your posture, or sense your walking, notice what that's like. We see how sometimes it can feel quite light and bright and quite enjoyable to inhabit. Other times it can be really uncomfortable or painful or feel heavy and dense and like, oh, you know, it's like, let me out of here, but where are we going to go? There isn't somewhere else. And this is something we start to see. Because in reality and truth, we can't leave. We never escape from our experience. But the effort of trying to or feeling somehow that we have to leaves us depleted and disconnected from it. Still impacted by it, still affected by it. And so there's this invitation here that we're offering to ourselves, essentially. This invitation that says, okay, let's see what it's like in the garden. Let's see what it's like where it's real. Because this is what's real. It's not some esoteric thing that you're going to discover at the end of some long meditative or spiritual journey. Of course, there are different dimensions of reality that will continue to unfold and reveal themselves. But this here is also part of that. This that's happening now is real. And it's not too real, actually. Although we might at times feel a bit like that. We might relate to that sense of, no, I don't really want to go there. It's too real. Even if we don't think so, just watch what our mind does and how quickly it wants to go back and turn on the television rather than have to just 
be mindful of breathing or attentive to taking a few steps or going through the day with care and attention rather than being distracted or lost. So there's an invitation here to discover, to rediscover essentially, the natural potential, the inherent possibilities of our life. And to really support yourself, to really make good use of this opportunity, is to to give yourself to this process again and again. To see that the things that we do in our hearts long for, for our own well-being and for the welfare of our world, the, the peace, the happiness, the freedom, the love, the care, the connectedness, the lightness and joy, the many things that we wish for in our lives and for others, these are things that we can come to discover. Not that we somehow have to make them happen or that we create them, but that we need to rediscover the pathways that reveal them, that bring us into contact with where they are already in our lives and where they can be brought more fully more freely and more deeply into our lives. So, we start from where we are. I think I might have said that last night. It's hard to get what that means. It's easy to say. It's not so easy to get for ourselves what that means. To really get that where you are is okay. That you don't need to be somewhere else. You know? You don't need to be somewhere else. You don't need to be someone else. Or something other than just what you are. But the the habit is strong. The years of practice at trying to fit in to what we think or what others have told us we should be, or how we should be, or where we should be, and when we should be there. It takes time to begin to let that drop away. But as we do, I think, we can start to also acknowledge and sense that the primary thing that's going on in a way has there's maybe lots of ways I could one could approach this but one way we can understand what's going on is that we're affected by the world and by life and by experiences within us we're affected we're not an island we're not in isolation we're not separate because we're constantly being touched by affected impacted in ways that may be uplifting or that may be challenging to us. That may be welcome or that may not be welcome. But we're being affected constantly. And we are affecting the way in which we manifest, express or respond to our experience or react to it also has an effect. It affects others and Our normal mode of being, it's quite obvious when we're speaking or engaging with others. But here, even it affects others and it affects ourselves. So there's this process of being affected, 
responding. Being affected, responding. We see there's this interactive process going on. And this is really at the core of what it means to be alive. Something that isn't alive doesn't feel, isn't affected, isn't really touched, and doesn't really respond. That's what kind of something that isn't alive, just that's how it's different from us. When we sense that we're affected and that others are affected and that creatures are affected and trees and rivers are affected, we start to sense a sort of, oh, wow, there's something in common here, a sense of being affected, impacted, touched. And we're very sensitive, we're very tender beings, in fact. Of course, we've probably, most of us, learnt not to show that too much on the outside. And we've also learnt that, um, you know, we need to somehow defend ourselves from the world because this tender, sensitive humanity that's going on here, at times it feels like it gets overwhelmed by the impact, by the affect of, of life. And yet we see that if we hide away from it, if we withdraw from it, if we spend our life sitting in the living room on a sofa watching telly, we're going to lose something precious and important that we don't want to lose because we value it, because we love it, because it's alive. Because although out in the garden where it's real, there's a risk that we might encounter something painful or difficult, there's also the possibility of discovering that which is beautiful, that which is uplifting, which is noble, which is delighting to our heart and nourishing to our being. And so we're in that territory. We're here, going out into the garden. Sometimes, of course, slipping back in to watch tally and then, okay, let's go back out there. Let's see what's real here for us. Let's see what's actually true. Let's not believe the stories that the television programmers would have us believe that life is about watching telly. I don't know how well that metaphor works for you. I hope it's useful because I find it quite interesting, quite useful. I don't have a television in my house. Well, not a television that's hooked up to telly because I find it addictive. And so the easiest thing is just to get rid of it or not be wired up to that system. I don't regard that as any great achievement. Um, be more useful to be able to be moderate, I think. But anyway, that's how it works. Learning to be in that relationship of balance with our life and with our minds is a large part of what we're doing here. Learning to do and deepening our capacity to do. Although life is challenging, we can learn to meet the challenge. We can discover within ourselves the capacity that is there, that's innate, that's natural, but that isn't necessarily obvious to us, that isn't necessarily actually supported by the way our culture tends to work, our society and its values tend to be much more oriented towards a sort of a materialism, a sense of trying to get satisfaction through manipulating or controlling the world or experience or things. And... It just doesn't work for us, does it? We know that, actually. I don't think we'd be here unless we had already got some sense of that. 
that the attempt to manipulate and control the world doesn't work because somehow it's not uh, it's not in our influence or power to make things be the way we want them to to always make them comfortable or flattering to us sometimes it hurts sometimes we don't look good and just yeah that's how it is of course other times it's lovely i'm not saying it's sort of i'm not trying to paint a negative picture of it but what this practice is concerned with is really seeing where it is that we can transform our life and how it is that we can go about that. So that we kind of withdraw the authority we've given to the kind of external world to determine whether we're happy or not, whether things are the way we want them to be or not, isn't in our control. But how we meet them, how we engage with them, how we respond to them is not so much in our control, but we can develop, we can grow in our capacity, profoundly so, to be able to transform our life in our responding to it, rather than in our demand for it to be a certain way, which it often is not. So we can think in terms of of a training process. There's lots of ways we can think. It's not just a training process, but there's a training element to what we're doing sense of coming back again and again to being present and using the breath or using the body or using the feet touching the ground as the, the way we anchor that sense of presence. So it's important we understand we're using these as tools. We're not saying that being meditative or mindful or present means that you're with the breath and anywhere else means you've failed or you're not mindful. We're using the breath in the sitting meditation as a way of anchoring But it's that quality of presence, that sense of immediacy that comes through the anchoring, that's supported by the breath and our attention to it. That's what we're cultivating and establishing. And that can actually be brought to bear and equally brought to bear on the full range of our experience. And in terms of the meditative practice, that's actually where it's going, so to speak, if it's going anywhere. The inclusion of everything. If we start, or if we try to do that right at the beginning, we easily just get lost in it because there's way too much going on. You know, and one or two people spoke in one of the groups about, you know, sometimes even just in one step, there starts to become more going on than we can quite process. And that's just something quite simple. And so we just, we're just trying to simplify it. Just, okay, just take one part of that step then. That's why we slow it down. It gives us a better chance to kind of catch it and be able to handle it when we're still kind of learning how to do this, as we develop a certain skill with this and a capacity for this, we can then actually handle a lot more. We don't have to slow it down. It doesn't have to be sort of like in this specially rarefied environment of the retreat to practice, although this is a great place to practice and to learn and develop, not just in beginning practice, but in the ongoing development of, of the meditative journey. And so there's, there's this training of, of coming back, of reconnecting with where we are, with what's immediate and actual, and seeing how much that's supported by the kindness, the gentleness, the care with which we do it, and a sense of encouraging, being encouraging with ourselves rather than being harsh or judgmental 
or overly demanding. So sort of that sense of stretching ourselves, seeing what's possible for ourselves. And when we find that we're lost, confused, caught up, been gone, out to lunch for days it seems, okay, so it happened. But it's like, you know, we could say, oh, God, I can't do it, blown it, hopeless, again. Ever thought? Has anyone had that thought, you know, my mind's gone off to da-da-da-da-da again? It's like that sense of, oh. But actually, in the moment you realize it, you're not lost anymore. You're not gone anymore. You're actually already present. You've realized where you are, which is somewhere out there in the mind. So you're already present. And one could actually take comfort, in fact, rejoice in the fact, look, we're here again. We're back. Wonderful. Look at that. That's where I ended up and here I am. And in this moment I can reconnect and begin again. Rather than, oh no, I was so lost, I'm confused, I can't do it. It's more like, huh, I'm here. Because, you know, while we're lost, we don't really care. It doesn't really matter. We don't even know it's happening. That's what it means to be lost. Once we know that we're lost, we're not really lost anymore. We're simply present with the fact that our mind has been out wherever it went. So rather than, oh no, I couldn't do it, and worrying about that, just in that moment begin again. It's like, huh, here we are. This is the key. Here is the door. We can move right into that. Rather than going back out to where we were thinking, oh, what am I doing here? Why, why was I there? Not necessary. So just simply begin again. Here we are. And as we do that, we find slowly, almost unexpectedly and against the run of play it would seem, it becomes more possible to be present and to connect. And the resistance to that starts to slowly soften and dissolve and fall away. So that rather than somehow kind of needing to push ourselves towards it, we feel ourselves in a natural sense of being drawn towards it because actually, yes, this is where we want to go. Not just because we think we should, but because actually we're starting to sense what it offers us. And that's actually more enticing, more attractive than the distraction or the reactivity. And at the same time as we could talk about this kind of training of the mind, this learning to steady and stabilize and focus the mind, to gather together the energy of it, in the same way as we might focus the bulb, the light of a torch with a, with a lens, so that we can really see clearly. As well as that kind of focusing and gathering, there's equally and at the same time a process of opening the heart that takes place. And, you know, we could talk about the heart-mind equally. We don't have to separate them out and say they're two different things because they're actually not. But just for talking about it, they're useful ways of talking about the sort of the, the, the process of recognizing of, of, of attentiveness and of the activity that goes on in that, of thoughts and images and experience which we tend to think of more in terms of mind and its experience. And then heart in terms of the sense of where we feel, where we touch, where emotional life moves through us, sensitivity, or at times what we experience is an absence of sensitivity. And that and just getting to notice what this is like. And the opening in that process is about allowing it to be as it is, seeing how quickly and how powerfully at times we say no to 
our experience. I don't want this. I don't accept it. It's not allowed. I want it to go away. I want it to leave. And then I'll meditate. Well, then I'll relax. Then I'll open or be interested or happy or peaceful. But it's not like that. When things are difficult or challenging, what we're being asked in our practice and in our lives, we're being asked often, as well as to understand what's going on, the learning process, there's equally, and often before we can understand it, we need to open to it. We need to say, oh yeah, this is how it is. The knee that aches, or the heart that aches, it's much the same in a way. It's like the first sense can be, oh, I don't want that. But then, oh, this is what's here. Can I allow it? Can I really be with this? It can be really useful sometimes to, when you notice reactivity, like, I don't want that, I don't want that. Noticing what it is we're reacting to. Oh, it's, it's painful, it's uncomfortable, it's hot or it's sharp or it's aching. And it's over here and it's like this. And just feeling it. If we start to feel and sense into it, we might notice it's changing or it's moving or it's somewhat more fluid than we might have first imagined. And equally, if something painful is arising in the heart or in the mind, just noticing, oh, that hurts, that's painful or that's scary and uncomfortable, just seeing if we can relax with it, be gentle with it. Often it's useful to breathe out, to just as if we were breathing out into the place of discomfort or pain. And if it's physical, we can actually direct the attention with the out-breath into that area, just allowing it to soften, to relax. to ah. So we're not habitually and unconsciously contracting and tightening against it, just giving it space. And often when we give it space, it allows it to move. And in that fluidity, it's much more possible to actually make friends with it, to be at peace with it. Likewise with the difficult experiences we encounter in the heart and the mind. Just sometimes breathing with it. It's like, ah, can I relax? Can I allow? Can I make space for this? And of course sometimes we might notice, I can't. It's too much for me. No. No. And then, okay, notice that. Can we make peace with the fact that right now it's too much? And just back off. Don't judge yourself or blame yourself for it. It's like sometimes it is too much. And it's okay to change the posture, move your leg, move your shoulder. It's okay to just move away from that place of discomfort, turn your attention elsewhere. Not running away from it, but just saying, that's enough. And maybe I'll come back to that later, when I feel like I've got some resources again, some capacity for that. So this process of encountering the difficult and not running away from it, this is the process of how actually our hearts grow. And often the greatest growth in our heart comes in, a, in situations in our lives when we can't run away from it, we have no choice. And then we have to grow, we again have no choice. We have to grow. And often when we've been through difficult times, sometimes at the other end we realise how much we've learnt from them, how much we've grown and opened through them. Here we're choosing not to run away, rather than being forced not to. We're choosing to turn towards rather than away from our life and our experience. And yet it's not easy. It's really not easy. I can't say that too many times. The forces and the energies within us that are sort of primed to react, to push away, to get rid of, can be very strong. And we need to come to get to know them, to understand them. I'd like to read you something which I think is a, 
find it very useful in, in terms of this, of how we, illustrating how we tend to react to so much of the experience that we find either difficult or threatening in some way. And what it is that's difficult or threatening can vary for each of us, but we probably all know what it's like to encounter things that we sort of, we're not sure we really want to go there. We'd really rather like them to go away. And so this is actually the transcript of an actual conversation, a radio conversation between a U.S. naval ship with the Canadian authorities off the coast of Newfoundland in October 1995. And this is actually the transcript of what took place. It begins with a communication from the American ship saying, Please divert your course 15 degrees the north to avoid a collision. Then there's a response from the Canadian saying, Recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. Americans responding, This is the captain of a US Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. You recognize this? It's like, and, and so that sense of starting to you know, puff up, wanting to get rid of it. The response is, Canadians, no, I say again, you divert your course. The Americans, and this is in capital letters, so I guess it's like shouting. This is the aircraft carrier USS Lincoln, the second largest ship in the United States Atlantic Fleet. We are accompanied by three destroyers, three cruisers, and numerous support vessels. I demand that you change your course 15 degrees north. That's 1-5 degrees north. Or countermeasures will be undertaken to ensure the safety of this ship. Canadians. This is a lighthouse. (laughs) Your call. So it's kind of amusing in one sense, and of course delightful in many ways, and yet do we recognize that encounter in our lives? There's something that seems to be in the way that might be a danger to us, and I'd really like it to go. So the energy goes into get rid of it. And, and we can kind of, you know, we get pretty righteous about the fact that it's got to go. And we can sometimes be like that with life. It's like life's got to be different than the way it is. But actually, life can't be different than it is any more than the lighthouse can get out of the way of the ship. It's the ship that's got to move. And it's we that actually have to understand what it means to orient around our life in a way that's more fluid and less fixed, that's more willing to respond to where we need to adjust or accommodate what actually is there in front of us. Because if we steam straight into the lighthouse, it's going to hurt. And we've done that probably most of us. Certainly I have at times. And yet over time we also start to realize, hmm, I don't think I want to do that. So much. And some of what we encounter here in the meditation is how that energy of get out of my way arises. And we have to learn just to open to where we are. It's not easy, but with kindness and with care and with patience, we learn this in the journey as we go along our way. And so there's an element also of this practice, as well as that sense of training the mind, of cultivating the heart, where we're revealing what is true. We're rediscovering or uncovering the truth of our life, the way things are. 
We talk about the way things are as the dharma, the, the nature of things. And one of the aspects of that is that some of life isn't as we want it to be. You know? The fairy tale suggests that it can be that way. The advertising media media regularly sells us images of things that when we get them, it will be that way. But it's not true. And we know that. We know that it's not true. There's no sort of magic wand solution to life. Because we have a heart and a mind and a body and sometimes what we encounter just isn't easy. And yet, the idea that somehow fixing or controlling all of that is required in order for us to find peace and happiness. That's not true either. The potential for peace, for happiness, is within our lives already. Is within what's here. And when we think in terms of peace, what is that? It's the sense of we, we want the end of conflict. We deeply wish for it. All of us, I'm sure. The end of conflict. Now, that's within our power. Because although we can't remove all the things from our path that we might bump into, we can actually learn to, to open to them, to open with them and around them. The end of conflict with ourselves, with others, with life, it comes from our willingness within, our willingness to come to it in a different way. There's a lovely uh, response that was given by a Zen teacher and poet and peace activist, Thich Nhat Hanh, a Vietnamese, a much-loved Vietnamese teacher in the, in the Buddhist tradition, who was once asked in his, in his work seeking resolution to the incredibly painful and tragic conflict in Southeast Asia at the time, he was asked, what is the way to peace? And his response was, there is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Something very beautiful and profound in that. We tend to think there's somehow something we're doing to get there. And when we get there, that'll be peace. But actually, it's the way we do it that is peace. And when the way we engage is from a place of peacefulness, that is actually what brings peace. It's not a location or a destination. It's actually a mode of travelling. It's a way of journeying. And the making peace with our experience, learning to open to it, to befriend it, and in that befriend ourselves, this is the way in which that that wisdom is something we can learn and live. Peace is the way. So, you know, you can stop the battle with yourself and with the world. You can step out of it. You have that capacity. It's not easy. It requires support. We have to learn to really harness that potential within us. But we can, and we are. And we're doing it here, together.
an important part of making peace with ourselves. And really that's at the heart of where all the peace we seek for with others and with the world comes from. An important element of that is starting to really understand and to deeply understand that the way things are is not your fault. It's not like this because you did something wrong, because you failed, because you're bad, because there's something wrong with you. It's not true. And yet sometimes it seems that that's the way we have internalized the world and its limitations, its frustrations and its challenges. That somehow if I could have only been different or done it different, then it would have not been this way. Now, there's an appropriate way in which we can empower ourselves by taking responsibility for that which we can be responsible for. But we equally need to not blame ourselves for the fact that life at times is hard, that there is pain or suffering or confusion or struggle for ourselves, for those we love and for many we don't even know. To really let that in or to maybe just contemplate what it might be to let that in. One of the interesting things that happens when we come on a retreat and perhaps particularly on the first retreat or retreats We start to imagine that what's going on here is just happening to me. It's like everyone else is probably really getting it and really going for it and it's all happening for them. But me, it's like my my knees ache and my mind's all over the place and I can barely stay awake. Except, of course, when it's really painful and then I can stay awake very well, but the moment the pain stops, I'm drowsy and, you know, it's kind of, ah. And yet sometimes we look around and it's everyone else is sitting, they seem calm, they're all upright. And we, we start, and this, some, this, this gets reported in various forms regularly. And someone was speaking about it today in one of the groups that seems if we look around, everyone's sitting up so straight and so, it's like, wow, they're all so calm, so serene. They're, they're, you know, they're obviously really deep in meditation and probably some remarkable mystical spiritual experience is happening all around me for everybody else. And yet, you know, just, it's like 50 Buddhas to be and one, you know, overcooked vegetables. <laughs> and yet a few moments later that same person has closed their eyes and they're sitting there again and the person next to them looks around at them and it's like, oh wow, they're really upright, they seem relaxed. You know, the whole thing happens again. This way in which we compare ourselves to others or to some imagined standard of what should be happening and somehow feel ourselves wanting or lacking in that. One of the things that's really important and quite magical that can happen in the small group interviews is that we hear that for other people, of course, it's different. And some of them, you know, might be actually having quite a lovely time of it. But others also are struggling or challenged. And certainly, you know, we recognize our experience in their story too. And we realize, ah, it's not just me. It's not just me. It's not just you. It's how it is for us as human beings. And we're starting to face that. We're seeing that here. And then we can start to empower ourselves, as I said, rather than blaming either the world or ourselves for the way it is. We start to say, oh, there's there's actually mechanisms. There's a lawfulness. And again, as someone said, I I actually just realized how it is that I end up in this place. used to think it just happened. 
And then in the meditation, I sit and realize, oh, I kind of choose that in a strange and unconscious way. I go there. And that's how I end up there. And maybe I don't have to. So we start to find the beginning of a real empowerment and, and freedom, the possibilities of freedom, that we don't have to consent to being carried away by our habitual patterns and reactivities. And then something very different begins to open up, begins to reveal itself. We can be here more fully, more openly. We start to sense or to recognize the potential for unconditionality. where We're not placing demands upon ourselves or upon the world or upon others that say, I'll only be here if it's like this or it's not like that. We actually say, I'll be here whatever, come what may that we can actually be here in the midst of all things. We have that capacity. And and with that, there's a certain confidence that quietly starts to grow in our hearts and in our minds. A quiet but precious confidence in our life and in life itself. A trusting in ourself and in life. Not... In ourself, in the conventional sense of me and I'm great and I'm going to do it all and you know, make things happen, but more in the capacities that we have, the transformation that's possible for us, where we see that, you know, in terms of peace, in terms of happiness, what we look for, that the the worldly levels of that, which are fine and lovely when we can find them, of, of you know, the sense of where things are pleasant and comfortable and seem relatively safe and secure. That's fine and lovely. There's nothing wrong with it. But we see that it's not permanent. It doesn't always last. We can't guarantee it. We don't have to rely on that as much as we might have imagined. In fact, perhaps not much at all. That there's a, a deeper, there's a deeper possibility of peace, of happiness that we start to trust and and begin to rely upon. That's that's more born of this inner development and unfoldment and discovery. And again, all those di- those different words, development, unfoldment, discovery, they're all different ways of talking about what's happening as we're sitting here practicing together. That we, we find that just in a simple steadiness of mind, in those moments where we just connect and are present, it's like, oh, well, I can just be here for even just a breath or two. Something just, ah. Oh. We recognize something that's qualitatively different and while fresh and new, also familiar to us. It's like, yes, something in us says, yes, I recognize this, I know this, and it's valuable, it's precious. It's powerful. sense of steadiness of mind, a wakefulness that starts to, starts to shine from within us and through us. And this openness, quality of openness of heart. So we start to sense it in moments or occasions where something arises that we used to struggle with and actually we're not struggling so much. Or maybe we're even welcoming and interested and curious and caring rather than afraid. And we start to see that there's a certain there's an innate kindness and warmth and friendliness in our hearts. That when we're not caught in the fear and the pressure of busyness and rush and struggle that just starts to find its way out, starts to peep 
and then more than peep out, but in fact quite confidently stand out and really support us. It's really there, the sense of caring and kindness. And we're supporting our access to these capacities and qualities here in so many ways. That there's a, again, there's a starting to trust and yes, this is what's important. And I don't know, but I, I imagine, certainly from some of you, I've heard the sense, that sense of seeing, oh yes, this is something one can trust. And there's a deeper peace and happiness that comes through that. We have a sense of the potentiality to more and more open, to more and more awaken, to become more fully and truly what we are. Rather than somehow having to be what we've been told we should be or who we think we have to be or not being allowed to be who we are. And all the pressure and all the struggle that's built into that. It's more like a sense of, oh, actually, I can start to sense that there's this potentiality awakening and this trust and this confidence that slowly starts to build and grow with it. To fully awaken, to more and more fully awaken to the to the truth of our lives and that the deepest peace and happiness that we can know in the in the in the in the recognizing and the discovering of of our life as something fluid and open and dynamic and unbound unconditioned ultimately unbound by the things that appear to bind it to see that we don't need to define ourselves or confine ourselves in the ways that we've imagined we might have to, or that we've been taught to. And just as someone was saying how the quality of silence shared together in one of the groups, someone was remarking wonderfully how the sense of silence in the group allowed a, a relaxing, and there was something lovely about it, a relaxing because of not having to be someone, not having to present in a certain way. A certain just, ah, we're all together, but we don't have to kind of be somebody. There's a certain relaxing in that silence, that outer silence of not speaking together. That starts to run more deeply into us, and we can also begin to sense the, the relaxation of the, as our inner life, our heart and our mind also become quieter. And we start to sense a deeper inner silence where we're, also not having to be somebody for ourselves on the inside where we can actually just allow what is to be as it is. This which is, that we can say is me and we can equally say isn't me. It's just what's happening. But that as we begin to trust that and no longer need to coerce it, there's a, a freedom that opens up to be undefined and unbound by what moves and flows through us and yet to be really in contact with it all to be together not just with each other but with the movement and flow of our life 
in this there's the really the the possibility, the potential for us all to discover. We could say a a deeply loving wakefulness that really holds our life and all of life. And which really is the both the both the invitation to and the fulfilment of the peace and the happiness that we seek for in our lives. So let's just sit quietly together for a few moments. So may we all, through our practice and in our lives, come to find more and more deeply the true peace and happiness of heart and mind and life that we that we wish for, and to abide in the loving wakefulness that is unbound and that is simply right here and now for our own welfare, for the welfare of all beings.